0: Well, here's my first question. Do you think it's a little dangerous handing out guns in a bank?
1: Did you know that the footage of George W. Bush at the Al Smith dinner in Fahrenheit 9-11 was used out of context? Hello, and welcome once again to Michael and Us, a depressing, nostalgic journey through the cinema, the art, the thought of Michael Moore. Uh, I'm Will Sloan, a good guy, and I'm here with... <laughs> Luke Savage, also a good
2: guy, I hope.
1: I don't know, what do you want to talk about? Uh, the DNC is happening right now as we speak. I believe Michael Bloomberg is talking as we record yeah, this.
2: Yeah, we're, we're going to get to uh, this week's film shortly, but we'd be remiss if we, if we didn't mention that tonight's film and uh the ensuing recording helped us avoid the no doubt insufferable speeches that are happening at the dnc right now and as will said michael bloomberg Love is literally guy. on the
1: stage right now uh oh, brutal yeah so um i don't know i was glued to the rnc last week of course mm-hmm. For for the dnc i saw a few seconds of michelle obama's speech which was widely praised yeah and I'm sure it's fine for what it is, hmm. um, which is hack, hack yeah. work, bullshit. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I saw... People, it. Lo-
2: people love it, though, right? Like, yeah. And, like, at like, as we're watching the film, Joe Biden was apparently on the stage, and, you know, just scanning Twitter, you had some quote about, like, Donald Trump doesn't understand why America's great. He doesn't even have a clue. And all these people are sharing it, like, whoa, amazing barn burner of a speech. Finally, and Joe, Joe Biden says just what said we're it. all thinking.
1: Yeah, and... I mean, I don't get it. And um, I saw a few seconds of um, Lena Dunham and America Ferrera because I thought, uh, oh, well, I'll ironically watch this. Oh, but, God. But I, I thought, I mean, this is, I've, I've really enjoyed Lena Dunham's entire role in this campaign because <laughs> clearly she kind of got on board this thing at a time when it, 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 it looked like Hillary. It's going to be a
2: Clinton coronation. Yeah,
1: Hillary was just going to cruise to the nomination. And I don't think Lena Dunham expected to answer all these questions about, like, sexual assault allegations that Bill Clinton has faced. Yeah. Or, or, you know... Uh Hillary or, Clinton's horrible foreign policy. Or the, the
2: fact that she was brought on, right? Because, you know, the Clinton campaign and all their, like, focus-grouped wisdom were like, okay, we need to appeal to young people. Who's, who's like, the voice of her generation? Lena
1: Dunham. Which is a hilarious thought that Lena Dunham because, is the voice be, of her generation. Because,
2: I mean, because a 74-year-old socialist from Vermont has a much better claim <laughs> to being the voice of this generation than Lena Dunham. Sure.
1: Lena Dunham, a, uh, like you know, somebody who has a show that's maybe watched by two million people and is detested by obviously people on the right Right. for the wrong reasons and people on the left for for, probably good reasons, for probably good reasons.
2: I I can't say I've ever seen it, but I'm glad that Lena Dunham's around to stick up for the causes that matter, like uh, pointing out that college dining halls serving sushi is cultural (laughs) appropriation. (laughs) I mean, I mean, if
1: so, you know, somebody's got to call these things out. So, yeah, um, I haven't seen any of the DNC. Uh, well, I think, like, here's
2: the thing. Like, I think we can watch the RNC in all its gaudy awfulness and just be delighted at it. Because it's a just... I mean, it's a hila- it was a hilarious spectacle. I mean, apart from the parts that were genuinely scary. I mean, the thing that struck me, I think I mentioned, like, last week was just how... Honestly, apart from the really crazy stuff, which you know i'll admit existed a lot of it just sounded like right-wing boilerplate and the big takeaway for me from the melania trump plagiarism was not that she plagiarized it was that you know that same speech could be given at either convention (laughs) and nobody would know the difference because you know the parties so often draw on this similar set of just totally hackneyed idioms about you know making it and working hard and Mm -hmm. and it's just all this kind of abyss of post-ideological nothingness
1: by the way have you been enjoying uh dinesh d'souza a, a favorite of the podcast dinesh d'souza friend of the podcast <laughs> yeah. dinesh if you're listening uh and why wouldn't you be uh we want you as a guest come on yeah um but he, he's at the dnc this week
2: he's been he's been hanging around and and uh he's been he's been really calling out the dnc on on like <laughs> Things like the fact that they had the Pledge of Allegiance on a teleprompter. And oh. Let me tell you, you really caught those libtards with their pants down. They,
1: they don't even know the Pledge of Allegiance off by heart. Well, you, you know, as Mike Huckabee, my man, Mike Huckabee <laughs> said— Also friend of the podcast. If he wants to come on, we'll have him. Uh, He's got, <laughs> got nothing better to do, honestly. <laughs> as he said, you know, uh, and I'm paraphrasing from his Twitter, it's a sign of the times that uh, the Democratic uh, National <laughs> Convention has an all-gender restroom but no American flags. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there is not a single American flag at the DNC. Oh my God. I, I, well, probably, there probably weren't as many as the, like, just orgy of American flags or the RNC. That's I mean, true. God. But, but what
2: I was going to say before <laughs> is that I feel like, you know, with the, the RNC, we can, like, as people who are definitely not remotely of the cultural milieu that produces uh-huh. something like the RNC, we can just look upon it with critical remove. I, I basically don't think I can watch the DNC. Mm-hmm. Because... So much of it, to me, is just everything that's wrong with kind of I don't know the middle class liberalism that has narrowly triumphed this time in American politics, and which really is still kind of hegemonic across you know in the United States and elsewhere. Well, listen, we're gonna get four years of Hillary Clinton, and then <laughs> and then we're gonna get eight years of Ted Cruz, and then uh,
1: your little your little socialist revolution can, can, happen can happen
2: again and well it'll be a radical revolution where the united states like secures a couple social programs that every other country in the world already And i mean
1: by that time china will have like overtaken us (laughs) why am i saying us we're in canada it doesn't even fucking matter we'll be fine that's another reason i'm not watching It's not my fucking country (laughs) anyway we watched uh speaking of canada we watched uh, a terrific canadian documentary tonight um called manufacturing dissent the third in our oh, in our journey no, yeah. through the anti-Michael Moore films that came out in the years after Fahrenheit 9/11. So not only is it a Canadian film by Debbie Melnick and Rick Kane, uh, but it has some pretence to being a liberal film. We like nonfiction and we live in fictitious times.
3: We are against this war, Mr. Bush. Shame on you Mr. Bush. he is without question the most well-known person in the history of michigan what do you think he is driven to get things done by any means necessary and i don't hold that against him it's
0: always the ends justify the means isn't that what the cia says oh. is it possible to somehow do a, a longer interview at some point well I, i'm kinda i'm I, I kinda i actually i don't like documentaries every time something goes really well for michael moore fundamentally things get worse and worse in the country
1: i have not seen fahrenheit 9 11. i'm a very sensitive person i cried team saving so ryan bam you got it there's your republican voter so the movie opens uh with debbie melnick who's kind of the michael moore figure of this film saying that she was really inspired by michael moore's oscar speech and uh thought it was a uh, a necessary bit of truth in these troubled times where the media was going along with george w bush hook line and sinker and she wanted to make a movie that got to know the real michael moore and she wanted to sit down and talk to him but turns out things weren't that easy
2: <laughs> one thing that stuck out to me as we've watched all these anti-michael moore films is how they all seem to replicate his worst tendencies <laughs> both in like tonally in term visually in terms of their kind of, um, the epistemology of them, how kind of awkwardly they segue from one thing to another. Even the gags are the same.
1: And they deliberately mimic his, uh, his structure of, you know, first person documentary, little man up against a a big force. But they don't seem to grasp what it is that made it a a (laughs) semi-effective rhetorical strategy in Moore's films. No, they replicate all the same things, but to like no effect. So also...
2: They all seem to use that same, like they'll replicate his sort of semi-performative earnestness, yeah. right? Like we're, I'm just an independent, you know, regular person trying to get to the bottom of things. Even the conservative film we watched, uh, last Michael Moore hates America, yeah, you know, did that too. And this one, I had big hopes for this film because yeah. all I knew about it was that I'd seen it in a lot of gas station bins. <laughs> uh, I vaguely knew that it had some connection to my native Canada. <laughs> and and uh, and I thought that it was. I mean, on the cover, it proudly advertises. You got Noam Chomsky, Christopher Hitchens. These people are in this movie. Yeah. Um, so and all, so, I was like, this was gonna be. This is the big liberal critique of Michael Moore, left wing critique. And
1: I'm gonna say right now, this is the worst movie we've seen. Yes. for Yes, unequivocally, podcast. it is such a piece of shit. And it's what I hate about it is how disingenuous it's ba- it is it's
2: badly made
1: it looks terrible
2: it's not entertaining it's not funny and it's r- and it's ridden through with this vindictive
1: mean streak it has that makes this no yeah sense. it has this real like cloud of negative energy over it and it really had me looking back fondly at both fahrenheit 911 11 and michael and moore hates Ma- america well especially because <laughs> <Yeah>. fahrenheit 911. <9/11, laughs> at least
2: what, we, what are we becoming
1: Fahrenheit 9 <laughs> at least has the courage of its convictions it's a more yeah coherent i mean it's like, not it's, it's, it's a terrible it's, movie it's a piece of shit yeah. but it's still <laughs> a more coherent sort of unabashedly right-wing attack yeah. on michael moore michael moore hates america has kind of a kind of naive charm to it and it has it has a level of sincerity to it
2: yeah because uh, the guy is just this he is an ordinary guy who's never made a film
1: before yeah. and he's out to make a film. Yeah. And this one has a bit of has a bit of a pretense to being a liberal movie, but it it doesn't unlike those other two movies, it has no discernible point of view no. and its only agenda seems to be to just chronicle every misdeed Michael Moore has ever done. Towards the end of the film, I suppose
2: there is a bit of a thesis that emerges, which we'll get to in a second, but what's really frustrating is how I mean, we were, I think, 30 minutes in, like, so a third of the film at least, if not more, and I think I said, you know, the film has no thesis yet. It's mm-hmm. just, I mean, there's so much of it is just, it's it's these talking heads interviewing people, and some of them are saying, oh, I worked with Michael Moore and he was great, and some of them are saying, he's a narcissist, he's a megalomaniac, mm-hmm. whatever. But then the, the filmmaker is just, you know, she's hardly present in it, the film has no voice. It does develop a thesis later, which is that Michael Moore is is a total narcissist that he's not sincere at all that he's somebody who's pursued his own celebrity uh above anything else mm. and that just like the right-wing people he criticizes he's part of the problem you
1: know? and actually i, I, I love all- i love this line of attack that all oh. of the documentaries have done which is that it's people like Michael Moore with their divisive rhetoric mm. who are really dividing America. Th- those are the people that went
2: to the rally to restore sanity <laughs> and thought this is the solution <laughs> to all our problems. And the solution is that what we need is is we need to have a single political party. Because, of course, political parties <laughs> don't reflect existing differences in the country. They just they just engineer those differences to, to drive a wedge between people. So let, wouldn't it be great <laughs> if we lived in a one-party state without the scourge of partisanship? Am I right? <laughs> and it's, inter- it's
1: just interesting that, like, at this point in the podcast, so we watched a, a whole bunch of Michael Moore movies, yeah. and one of our complaints is that their politics were just sort of, like, milk toast yeah. and, you know, kind, kind of a bland liberalism that didn't really... Very, very, like, culturalist in outlook and not very programmatic. And, yeah. Yeah. And, but it's just interesting seeing these three films... Like, what a big deal. Like, what a thorn in the side of the right this guy was for, su- for such yeah. a while. Like, people in these documentaries, I think, assign so much more importance to him yeah, than he really had. had. Like, people are talking about him. I mean, this is at a time when, you know, the Republicans had the Senate, they had the yeah. White House, they had the Supreme Court, yeah. uh, they had the, the most watched cable news channel in the country, and here's this, like, one, you know, tubby documentary yeah. filmmaker yeah. And and they're all saying, well, you know, he, he's misleading people. And he's giving them false information. And, you know, f- free speech applies to us, too. And we need Ugh. to counteract this dangerous scourge's oh message. Ugh. uh I don't know it's just it's just an amazing time capsule in that sense
2: yeah although like i do think this film like it's not a right-wing film like she's not no. discernibly from the but she
1: interviews a lot of people who are right
2: interviews a lot of them as if they're kind of not from the right and mm. it's kind of annoying like she just interviews them like she interviews people who've written books like you know the lies of michael moore <laughs> as if they're these kind of like dispassionate experts on the subject. Although she also interviews uh, your man, Noam Chomsky. Okay, so... <laughs> let's talk okay, about that. Let's talk about this. Because, <laughs> so, you know, you get this film, and on the box, I'm pretty sure, right on the front, it's set... We watched it on YouTube, of course. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, you know, I've earned my money. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> on the box, it, you know, proudly advertised all these big names that are in the film. So, you know, we're like 45 minutes into this film. It's already an excruciating grind. Bam! Noam Chomsky's on the, on the screen. He starts developing you know, what seems like a really interesting point.
3: If you look at the coverage of the Iraq where there is criticism. But look what it is. I mean, the criticism is it's not going well. I mean, if you read Pravda, Pravda in the early 80s, uh, when Russia was invading Afghanistan, it would have looked very much like the liberal Press in the United States.
2: Fifteen seconds later, gone. Never appears again. You never see him again. Same thing happens. Same thing happens with Christopher Hitchens.
1: Christopher Christopher Hitchens doesn't even say anything interesting. It's just for five seconds. He, he just says. He just says. Well, uh, Michael Moore has a has a documented history of, uh, of uh, manipulating footage to create yeah. a false impression.
2: Okay. He has problems with uh, verisimilitude. Uh, well, yeah. Whatever. yeah, whatever. Which is, is something yeah. that like any, anybody could say.
1: Anybody could have said.
2: Yeah, and 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 I don't understand. Like my only explanation is that she must have punked these this footage from someone else. These must have been generic interviews that she stole because you do not get an interview with Noam Chomsky right. or Christopher Hitchens
1: and then use five seconds of right. it. Meanwhile, the guy who wrote that Lies of Michael Moore book is throughout just this movie. Just n- insufferable. No relief.
2: Yeah, and I, I want to
1: <laughs> say one of the big
2: problems with this movie is that, okay, let's try to just for a second giving it its due is the wrong expression it's too that's too politic there's not a single thing i
1: liked in this movie i don't like anything
2: but i do think there are so all these right-wing films have very ham-fistedly tried to bring up the problems with his you know filmmaking style him making things up this film like she got closer to the actual people that he, Michael Moore's worked with and have a problem with them than any of these right-wing filmmakers did. Mm-hmm. And there are a few things like, like I said, a lot of it seems really vindictive, really uh, mean spirited, but there are some things that like, it does seem like he just made stuff up or, I mean,
1: well, I mean, this movie falls into some of the same kind of traps that Michael Moore's movies fall, no, I, I fall agree. into where you're, you're hearing things and you're not sure what the context is. So, there's a really curious scene where we see like a high school um, theater troupe in Flint, Michigan, who are going to make do a play about Michael Moore. And we see an interview with somebody from the high school theater troupe who says who's refers to a scene in Roger and Me where Nightline is going to a big broadcast about Flint, Michigan. And, but somebody uh, drives away the truck uh, with the, the satellite truck. Uh, then there's a news broadcast that says Nightline has had to cancel its broadcast tonight. And so. The girl in the Flint, Michigan high school drama club says, we found out we were doing research and we found out Michael Moore made up this whole thing. Yeah. There was no nightline broadcast. There was no uh, thief of the satellite truck. She seems to be implying that this is
2: actually a made up news broadcast. Yeah. And if true that like, I mean, it's a really serious allegation, but like, I agree with you that coming from, you know, the source that it does delivered in the way that it is, yeah it's not very persuasive you just think well yeah
1: and, and i mean if it's something this serious surely mm. somebody a little higher up right. somebody with some, some connection to yeah. this somebody with some documentation yeah uh, uh, but,
2: but i mean there are things like the fact that michael moore it looks like actually did get interviews with
1: roger smith so that's the that's i think where this movie lands a serious punch yeah uh, probably maybe one of the only times yeah it, one of the major interviewees is a, is a former friend of Michael Moore's mm-hmm. who is very active in kind of the labor movement in Flint, Michigan uh-huh. and they hate up falling out with Michael Moore because uh, Michael Moore of course was also active in the labor movement and show, showed up at all the rallies and filmed all the rallies, but made Roger me all about him and implied that there was no labor movement in Flint. Yeah um, which you know if you know Michael Moore, uh, I guess that's a fair beef. But anyway, this former friend of Michael Moore's says that uh, Michael Moore actually did have two short, like, 10-minute sit-down interviews with Roger Smith, and then decided not to include them in Roger and Me. And, and that Moore and, asked him to, for, like, pretend they never happened. Right. Uh, and in fact, a few years after Roger and Me, a transcript of one of these interviews appeared in Premier Magazine. I talked to Roger Smith about the shareholders meeting he wasn't that difficult to find. Why didn't you guys respond to his film when it came out and say that didn't happen?
3: Well, I think the best advice we were getting at that time from people was it's just better
0: not to respond to something as bad as that was. Michael called me in the middle of the night and just, just said, basically, can you just say that this doesn't exist? And I said, it exists. There's a transcript of it. I'm, I can't, I'm not going to fall on my sword for you. I said to him, Michael, you you talked to him twice already. How can you do a movie on something you've done already? He said, well, I can make it look like anything I want. It'll just go on a cutting room floor.
1: So that's a pretty serious allegation. Yeah. Um, And I think it's an effectively made one. Yeah. And the only effectively made one in this movie. Yeah, and
2: I mean, it does make you think that Moore is somebody who you know his films he primarily thinks about them in aesthetic terms and it's about in rhetorical terms it's about conveying something that he wants and to it's convey. about
1: the ends justifying the means sure. as we hear so many times yeah. in this film uh, A- another example though where uh manufacturing dissent isn't very effective is we see an interview with harlan jacobson the former editor of film comment who talks about an interview that he did with michael moore for film comment where he talked about all the ethical issues of Roger and Me, about auto world closing before the layoffs happened, all that stuff, and Michael Moore getting very paranoid and saying, uh, you know, why am I having to address this? You wouldn't hold other films to the standard, basically. And he wrote kind of a hatchet piece of Michael Moore in film comment. And then Debbie Melnick, the narrator of this film, says shortly after because of the interview harlan jacobson was fired from film comment and it's so like, and it's like I, i'm sure maybe it probably had something to do with it but when you when you dump something you like can't that on just me, make a claim like you that can't just a, say that without backing yeah, it up
2: it's ridiculous
1: like um, what was the context of that
2: yeah and some of the things that she where she presents where she's trying to present more in a negative light he ends up you know coming off looking looking well so for example there's footage of an interview done by david gilmore of the cbc who uh, which and this is just crazy where he's he's uh, and then and then she interviews him years later and he's just saying oh you know i feel like i i i prodded him very slightly and then i met the real michael moore and then you see the, the that interview. the mask fell
1: off more yeah. so da- david gilmore is interviewing uh michael moore about canadian bacon which as you know was not a very well-received movie the second i asked
3: him the first thing he didn't like to hear the little persona of the sweet little boy, the regular guy, that mask slipped off, and I thought, that's the real Michael Moore. There are people you know who are having <clears throat> real serious problems with this movie, Canadian Bacon. I mean, no, people, who, you got a list? Yeah, I got a list, well, I got a long list. They think it's amateurishly shot, mm-hmm. uh, badly directed, right, and not funny. Right, why wow. Which is a problem for a comedy.
0: Well, uh, those people like art house films, you know? Right. And I made a film. You know, for people like me, some critics said this is the first left-wing film for the mall crowd. <laughs> and I don't know whether he was knocking people who go to shopping malls or, you know, live in trailer parks or whatever, but uh, I consider that a compliment. I mean, where are you from? Uh, Toronto. Yeah? Where did and and Yeah, uh, where did oh, I go to school? Yeah, you go I went school? to private school. So, you know, you come from a different class than I come from.
3: Yeah. You know, so,
0: you know, you might like different things than I like.
3: I don't think it's got anything to do with a highbrow intellectual crowd. I think it's possible that maybe you didn't make a good film. Mm And I think you've got to acknowledge that rather than dismiss the people who don't like you. Well,
0: I don't have to to acknowledge it. I think I made a very good film, a film that I'm very proud of.
3: It was really quite a schizophrenic interview because I could tell that he wanted me dead. But at the same time, I had him on film. And the only way that he was going to get that off film was to make me like him again. But
0: some people won't love the film. Right. It's okay. You don't you don't have to love the film. Right. Okay. You know, I, 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 I you know, I'll I'll still talk to you.
1: <laughs> you cut back to David Gilmore in the interview saying Ah, uh, that was I really I really saw the man behind the facade. And
2: it's like no, it's like he you you asked a rude question badly. Yeah, <laughs> and he and he just sort of parried it in the way that you'd expect Michael Moore to. Yeah, he do showed so. he
1: showed slight displeasure at having the film that he worked on for two years. Yeah, just just, just trashed ungraciously. ungraciously.
2: Gilmore, I mean, I mean, as an interviewer too, it's like he wasn't even like criticizing the film in his own voice. He was like the critics are saying. Yeah, it's like it's like Fuck yeah, you. like say what you think about yeah. it so another thing i learned in this film was and i mean it's not a knock against Moore's filmmaking style but it does make it it does make his what people would call his pragmatic streak come off pretty badly um and which you know something that i something that i don't like about him which we talked about in the very first episode when we did slacker uprising is like he aligned himself with carrie edwards uh despite the fact that like both of them voted for the iraq war and his whole thing was like stop the war
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so you see him in this film in 2000 campaigning for Nader and you actually there's I mean Ralph Nader is, I mean, he's in he's this. in the film and, yeah. and you get to hear real things from him and he's not happy with michael Moore because after 2000 Moore really disowned him and said that oh well once Ralph said he would you know wanted us to campaign in the swing states we said no way and it doesn't seem like that was true Um You know, it looks like Moore did campaign with with him in the swing states. But then beyond that, you see footage of him in the 2004 campaign. And he's talking about going into the voting booth, you know, to this audience of, you know, this big stadium audience or whatever. Going to the voting booth He's kind of making like a sex joke about how how good it feels to vote for Ralph Nader.
3: He wanted so badly to get Bush out that he was going to go for the only likely alternative, which was John Kerry. But he didn't have to be so antagonistic to us. He didn't have to go around the country undermining us. It feels good to vote for Ralph. I voted for Ralph. He has that personality quirk. It's not very, uh, it's not very pretty. You
0: go in the voting booth and you close the little curtain and there you are, just you and Ralph alone in the booth. Oh, there he is on the ballot. Oh, Ralph. Oh, Ralph. Oh, you're so good. You're so right. Ah!
2: Oh, and then you open the little curtain and you have a cigarette, and it feels good. And I, I mean, I think that Moore could have campaigned for Carrie Edwards and just kind of, you, I mean, you've you've you know, you've got to you've got to own it. I think kind of disavowing, you know, the the progressives or Green Party people are saying, you know, we're not voting for the you know the the pro-war candidate. Like I, I just think that's. It really does a disservice to the like even if Michael Moore wasn't going to align himself with those people anymore, I think disowning Ralph Nader and and disowning the people that he represented is really irresponsible and, and ugly. I don't like it.
1: Uh I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's not very graceful. The whole disowning of Ralph Nader was a pretty popular uh Yeah,
2: but a pretty it's, popular
1: thing in the yeah, two thousand four okay, election. And, and, you know, okay, like to, so, it's not like he's the only guy guilty of it.
2: Set, well, but I mean, it's not. I don't think he's guilty of anything. And we're seeing the same thing, right? I mean, we're in the. It's 2016 now, and Democrats and liberals still have this pathological obsession with Nader voters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've heard more about Ralph Nader in the past year than. Oh, like than I did since like 2004 in relation to
1: your boy Bernie Sanders well
2: I mean okay so you have all these people talking about Ralph Nader for years they were like critical of mm-hmm. the American left saying oh you keep splitting the vote like you're not interested in Democratic Party politics someone from the left someone dis- the first person like discernibly from the left in a long time to run you know for the Democratic presidential nomination and all of a sudden it's like oh but you're still Ralph Nader and like you're going to be a spoiler and all this kind of stuff Um, And they're doing it still with Jill Stein and the Green Party people. And I just think, like, regardless of what you think about, like, the idea of voting for the Green Party, uh, it's not a good strategy to just malign these people. If you actually want them to vote Democrat, um, saying that they're just being privileged and entitled because they care about, you know being anti-war and like these things i just
1: well i think um, and it also
2: it also as nader himself says in the film it speaks to this mentality that the democrats have that they are the sole proprietors of any votes to the left of the gop which i just think like okay like to a to a point you know Maybe maybe some people owe them votes in some context, but you gotta earn people's votes. And they don't seem interested in doing that a lot of the time.
1: Sure. I mean I agree with that. I, I would say that just in fairness to Michael Moore, I think his line of attack was just more on Ralph Nader than his supporters per se. I mean But he, I mean
2: by attacking Ralph Nader in that way, you're attacking the whole like ethos of what he was trying to do, which is just we can't have this two party we can't have this duopoly anymore, this corporate duopoly, we need a third force. And I just think it was, like, for him four years after he was on side with that, it's it's ugly. Anyway, you know, it's this is just a brief section of the film, and I mean, I'm not even really... This is not even something I'm praising the film for showing us. I just think it's interesting. And the fact that Nader himself speaks to it, and he says Michael is confused... You well, know?
1: listen, I think Michael Moore has much greater sins, such as when he was editor of the Flint Voice. Uh, he <laughs> Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> he promised uh, a $10 fee for the music freelancer and never paid him. And the guy is still angry about it. Ten dollars a month, and he's like, "We never, we never got it." Uh, also, when um, Michael edited Mother Jones, uh, he was apparently rude to people. And at the at the first meeting, he trashed Mother Jones. He wasn't a team player. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that that is something that this film is kind
2: of doing, which is maybe one of the problems with it. A lot of it seems to involve like the filmmaker's style. I mean apart from just aping all the worst tendencies of michael moore himself is that she's going through his past and just meeting all these people that he kind of brushed shoulders with on his way up and uh some of whom have nice things to say and a lot of them who just have all this kind of mm-hmm. muck on him and some like some of it seems legitimate a lot of it just seems like people are a little bit like there's even one guy who's in a basement who advised Moore not to do narration okay. on on uh, on on Roger and me, and then says, if he'd have taken my advice, he'd be in a basement like this.
1: Okay, that guy is not just anyone. That's Kevin Rafferty, director right. of uh, Blood, in, Blood in the Face, which is a documentary about uh, uh, neo-Nazis. He right. also directed a movie called The Atomic Cafe, which is very good. Okay. But more to the point, he is the uh, he's a cousin of George W. Bush. That's amazing, which incredibly this movie does not wow. even get into, but it's true. <laughs> wow, interesting. Uh, and Michael Moore talks about it a lot in interviews. Wow. But uh, Kevin Rafferty seems to be mm. to the left of Bush. Yeah, definitely. Um, anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about the framing device of this movie of Debbie Melnick uh, doing <laughs> doing her uh, her vo- her journey across America following the Slacker uprising tour which, of course, we addressed on our first podcast. That, that was the Michael Moore's Get Out the Vote tour in 2004. Oh, my God. We don't need to. <laughs> yeah. We've been over this over and over again. <laughs> Holy shit. So uh, at every stop, she's trying to get a sit-down interview with Michael Moore. There's a And, of course, not getting it. And there's an incredible scene where we see her on the plane on the way to the Cannes Film Festival where Fahrenheit 9-11 is going to have its world premiere. Mm. Uh remember that at this moment Fahrenheit nine eleven is one of the most talked about things in, in the, the world yeah yeah and while she's on the phone she, she while she's on the plane she's getting a call from Michael Moore's publicist saying they don't have time to do an interview and then she hangs up the phone and she says disgruntled something like huh Michael Moore expects all the doors of the world to open uh. for him but when we ask him for an interview yeah and remember that this is the week that Michael Moore, as we see in the film, is on the cover of Entertainment Weekly. Yeah. <laughs> like,
2: yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. It's a ridiculous framing device uh, that Michael Moore doesn't have time to talk to this, like, amateur filmmaker who's just, <laughs> you know, follow Somehow has time to follow him around. Hmm. I mean, we don't, you don't even know... I mean, honestly, the film gives you the impression that she's been following him around for years. <laughs> Can't have taken that, like, been that long, but it seems
1: that way. Later we see her at a press conference... Uh, at one of the Slacker Uprising stops where she asks him for an interview for a sit down interview and he says something along the lines of oh well um, you know maybe after the election right now I'm busy trying to get Bush out of office which is true which is true but then later at, at the same pit stop security escorts her out of the auditorium where he's doing a speech because they discover that she's forged her media credentials
2: yeah. which is something that she would definitely have criticized michael moore for giving. well
1: in fact she points out that it was a trick she learned from roger and me right. because you remember he yeah. goes to the factory pretending to be a toledo right. news crew yeah. um and honestly i just don't uh, like what she's implying is michael moore saw them at the press conference talked to them, the press conference was like get them the fuck out of here and yeah, it's clearly not what happened or even if it is, he wow. might he might have just said something... Or maybe one of the security people just said, wait a minute, that yeah. something's fishy here. And
2: then, you know, of course, as they're... As they're you know, so this is just like in, in any Michael Moore like, scene where he tries to talk to somebody and then gets thrown out, and then it's just this whole martyrdom thing. So as they're leaving, you know, she's like, we're getting kicked out by Michael Moore, who believes in freedom of speech. But, like, but also fundamentally,
1: so again, she doesn't understand, like, what's rhetorically effective about the way Michael Moore does it. Because... When Michael Moore goes into GM headquarters and goes in the elevator and the security guard stops him, he doesn't actually think the security guard's going to let him go talk no. to Roger Smith. Mm-hmm. Like the whole thing is a joke. Yeah, it's a piece of performance yeah. art. Yeah, uh, you know, in Bowling for Columbine, when they try to return the bullets to Kmart, mm. he's genuinely surprised at the end when Kmart phases out bullet sales because he's like, "This has never happened. Yeah. This was just a joke." Yeah, you know, it, it's just a fundamental misunderstanding yeah. of this whole
2: of this whole gimmick. Yeah, that's right. So I guess one other thing I want to say is that what like I, I guess about an hour into the movie I realized that we were getting sucked into this kind of meta vortex in the Michael Moore universe. And I think this week we actually reached a new phase of the podcast. Uh, we reached a, a kind of um I feel like you know, we've we've been meditating on Moore for so long. We've reached this kind of we've ascended to this kind of nirvana of, of mooredom. Um and, and that's because you know, here we are. You know, watching a movie for our Michael, uh, our Michael Moore podcast in 2016. This is the third in a in a line of of anti Moore films we've watched, and we're all the same. All these same characters are popping up again, uh, and the filmmaker is interviewing all the same people about all these same incidents in so Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 911. So we get people our yeah, all we get the our classics. old
1: friend, our old friend from Fahrenheit 911, the. <laughs> Soldier who lost both his arms, Who's,
2: who you joked the other week, is you know, he's obviously <laughs> on some circuit where he just goes to these like anti-Michael Moore things, and then honestly, seems what it's
1: like. He's in he's, he's, in, been this all he's been in all three of these films the yeah. where and in every one of the films, he said the same thing. Wow, Michael Moore got this clip of me talking to Brian Williams <laughs> out of context. I, you know, I, uh, he makes it look like I hate the war. I'm I'm proud of serving in the war. Right. And We the- needed to go to Iraq. He said that I'm so tired of this guy. Yeah, <laughs> and the,
2: and the people the people in the bank uh who he bought okay. the gun from so we don't we get to see them again but,
1: oh, but we don't even, we, we don't yeah. see them we, we see, see her the, interview the, michael wilson from the man who made michael Moore hates america <laughs> <laughs> and we see a clip yeah. from michael Moore. so hates this is america. like when that's
2: when we were watching it it's like it was like inception at that like point. the podcast <laughs> just is eating itself yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah and just like all of these all of these same talking points it's brutal uh so the movie ends with Debbie Melnick after the election, ambushing Michael Moore at some conference where he's getting an award. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see the two of them in the frame together and they're kind of chatting and mm-hmm. Michael Moore says something like, oh, it's the Canadians again. You guys sure are persistent. I asked Michael about the allegation that he owned Halliburton stock.
0: Have you seen the back cover of this book you well, am talking about? It doesn't say anything about a foundation. It makes it look like it's my tax return.
1: Oh, okay. It's
0: photoshopped. Yeah. Look at the book.
1: Oh, it's Photoshop.
0: You don't see anything about any foundation. Oh,
1: there's no foundation. You don't see
0: anything about a foundation. It makes it look like it's my tax return. But,
1: you but know, your foundation didn't do it either, right?
0: I do not. No. I, I, first of all, which foundation are you talking about? Because I'm on the board of directors of a number of charities. Your personal charity. I don't have a personal foundation. Okay. So there's
1: another thing that's okay. wrong. And, you know, they joke a little bit. And mm-hmm. then she, she starts asking him some questions about um, a book some anti-liberal book yeah. that had a copy of his tax return on the, on the back yeah. cover. And he says something along the lines of, oh, no, that's photoshopped. That's, yeah. you know, don't listen to this right-wing mm. stuff. Uh, and also she starts asking about... She doesn't
2: seem to have done her research, to be honest. Well,
1: she doesn't because she seems to... I don't know if she said this to him at the time or she found it out later, but Michael Moore uh, supposedly has some sort of charitable foundation. Uh, or it's, it's not a charitable foundation. It's like the Michael Moore Center for Alternative Media. Yeah. Who knows what it is. But apparently, s- through th- something involved in it, sh- traded Halliburton shares.
2: Ostensibly. But uh, but again, she shows us a computer screen that just looks yeah. like the same cover of the book that she's... Yeah. Uh, it's again one of these things where she makes this big claim, mm-hmm. and it honestly doesn't seem like it's... Yeah. I don't know.
1: Like, e- Michael Moore's allegations about Bush and Fahrenheit Nine Eleven having business ties with the Bin Laden mm-hmm. family, which are also not convincing. Yeah. They're more convincing than this yeah, is. Yeah, I agree. And this one might actually be true. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but anyway, the movie climaxes with uh, Michael Moore and her, uh, saying, "Well, you know, the election's just over. I'm really tired. I don't know if I'd be ready for an interview for probably another year." Yeah.
0: Between all the stuff we've talked about tonight, you got a good twenty
1: minutes. Okay. okay. All right. Just as I walk right. away,
0: Michael grabs me right. for a we'll hug. A Canadian hug.
1: Being Canadian, we don't hug at the drop of a hat. I feel awkward and i also realize how manipulative it is but i grin like an unabashed fan anyway and then he gives her he gives her a quick pat on the back a little hug and she says something she says something like maybe it's being a canadian where i we don't hug at,
2: like at first like yeah. sight or whatever and i
1: felt like Felt like I was manipulated by him,
2: and then you see, then you see the the continuation of the hug, <laughs> and she actually, you know, fully joins in it and like pats him, and actually yeah. even before he initiates the hug, I should say, yeah, like she like pats him on the chest or whatever and says like, okay, see you later or whatever, and
1: and, and, and the way she talks about it, it's like I feel like I'd been charmed by Hitler. She doesn't say that, but that's no, the implication. That is kind of what it seems like. It just seems like you know you can understand why people could fall under the sway oh of this God, master manipulator fiery rather charismatic <laughs>
2: demagogue no he j- like she she gives off every time she's actually there's a number of times where we see her interact with more throughout the film um this is the most kind of intimate and for the most sustained amount of time and she always seems like she hasn't done her research she always seems like she's insecure honestly she does look kind of like this she looks like this person who's like sort of still a fan or is just yeah. afraid to like confront him, or like doesn't know how to confront him properly, and so the intera- interactions are always really fraught and just they don't they mm-hmm. don't amount to anything. And then she, because she she has the narration, she's making film, just sort of and tells he, us what they yeah. mean after. And I think not he a comes across
1: way. quite well in all of them, mm-hmm. or as well as he can. Well, there's come one across. other thing she does, which uh, you know, is I this guess, after it's.
2: I think it's right after yeah. where she says she's found um. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is just the bottom of the barrel. This, <laughs> this one. I mean, she says she's found this this rare video footage of him at the same award ceremony backstage, and you're thinking, "Oh wow, you know, she's yeah. gonna she's got the real Muck now. We're gonna hear him." Because I thought he was gonna be slandering his fans or like something like that. Yeah, some a real face in the crowd or saying moment. or saying something like, "You know, oh, I can't believe I have to come back to this garbage town" or something mm-hmm. like that. And all he's doing is saying, "You know, he obviously sounds." I mean, you do re- meet the real Michael Moore. It seems like mm-hmm. uh, you meet a, a piece of the real Michael Moore, and he just seems like he's dis- distraught because the town hasn't recovered, and they were trying to, they were trying to keep GM there, and they failed, and like yeah. he just seems sad about his town.
1: And basically, she she says in her narration something along the lines of, uh, "This is the first time I'd seen Michael Moore look remorseful. The first time it seemed he had seemed he had regrets." And Ugh. I mean, I don't know, he. He does look a little sad. Yeah. He looks very sincere, but he doesn't look that different than we've ever seen him look before. No, it, it's... It's hardly the smoking gun. No. The, it's hardly the rosebud that she thinks it is. <laughs> so, in
2: sum... It's a piece of shit. It's not a good film. Terrible. It's really bad. Um, we're gonna... We Okay, but we should say, in the course of watching this movie uh i mean this film kind of in many ways is just a meta aggregation of all the anti-michael moore stuff <laughs> yeah. into this kind of giant postmodern pastiche of of anti-michael moore stuff and and so we learned about so many more
1: films oh, that we're yeah.
2: gonna have to watch so we got celsius 411 we got uh what a bro- the broken state or oh this divided this state. divided state there's yeah. like a couple there are there are
1: a bunch of other anti-Michael Moore so, movies. So
2: we, next week, we think we're going to just dive, just to take a refreshing, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this, but <laughs> a refreshing dive back into at least a semi-competently made film, which we'll probably also trash, which is Sicko, which is next in the chronological things of the of the Moore canon. And uh, I, I don't know. I'm I can't. It'll be a to breath it. of fresh air. I think, next, next, I think it's garbage. Be, and then eventually we're going to have to, you know, crawl back into the... The swamp that is like these. Hey,
1: are we ever gonna watch The Awful Truth?
2: Oh uh, we'll, well,
1: sorry, I, I don't, don't have I the don't, stamina. It, I I mean, know, you know, well, late. you're bringing me down. <laughs> it's like,
2: <laughs> I think, I think we'll watch. I think we'll have to. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, despite our complaints, uh, mine especially, I think we're enjoying every moment of this. Oh yeah. And I think that when we started the podcast the primaries were still going on and then they we've had like about a month of them being paused and there hasn't been anything like politics to talk about it's been a bit of a dead zone now we're going into the presidential election and i just feel like we're going to have more and more kind of space to talk about like fun political stuff as well as garbage michael moore stuff and i'm sure. looking forward to it so i feel like that's going to be our our healing bomb. Uh, as we travel through the uh... all
1: right. I'm not <laughs> so
2: sure about that but
1: until next week my name as always was the good guy Will Sloan and I was Luke Savage see you next time guys all I want is the truth
2: just give me some truth I've had
1: it-